Hello, everybody, and welcome to this next episode of Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. It's a real joy to meet with Greg Cunningham tonight on uh, a connection from Edinburgh across to California. So we're, we're juggling time zones here. Greg, you're doing okay, though? I, I am. Uh, great to be with you, Nick. Thank you for your time. I'm going to, I don't know if you find this kind of thing awkward or not, but I'm going to introduce you briefly just so that people know who who's talking. So if the easiest way for me to do that is just to read your bio, if that's okay, from the website, just to give people, it'll take me a minute or so, but I think it's important just to give um, folk a little bit of insight into your experience and so on, particularly if we end up doing another podcast, um, if today's isn't, if we don't have enough time for today, it just would, you know, it will help. So let me do this quickly. Greg Cunningham earned a BA degree from the Pennsylvania State University and a JD degree from the Ohio Northern University School of Law, where he served as an executive editor of the Law Review. He is the co-author of a handbook on attorney misconduct entitled Ethics and Discipline in Ohio. He is a former two-term member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, where he introduced legislation which ended public funding for abortion. Hallelujah. He was also a prime sponsor of the Abortion Control Act, which was litigated before the US Supreme Court in Thornburgh versus the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. He later helped direct the ballot initiative campaign which stopped public funding for abortion in Colorado. He next served as a special assistant U.S. attorney for Los Angeles. He's a retired U.S. Air Force Reserve colonel with six years of active duty service and 25 years in the ready service. Sorry, ready reserve. He's also a decorated veteran of the Vietnam War. So it's an honor f- to to meet with you, Greg. I know we've exchanged a few emails, and but this is the first time that we've talked. So it's an honor. We're grateful for your um, experiences. I've just outlined a little bit there, but if if you don't mind, I'm just going to say I'm just going to introduce for everybody listening why we're connecting, and this is the f- the first episode in our season looking at all the prophets. And for people listening, you'll have got the context of all of that. And the reason that Greg and I are talking tonight um, is because of a, a recommendation from a friend, a mutual friend who recognised that that Greg and I have a shared. Uh, appreciation for Abraham Heschel and particularly the book The Prophets written by Heschel. Um, I've alluded to that a little bit in my own book called Body Zero explaining um, this thing that Heschel refers to as divine pathos and the significance of of that um, in understanding um, the, the gift of prophecy in a New Testament context for us today as as messianic believers. So, Greg, it was it was it was something that piqued my interest to hear of of a man of your experience and so on with this same um, appreciation of Heschel. So, so thanks for joining me. Well, it's a privilege to be here. You come uh, highly recommended, and um, it really is an honor to be a part of this. It's it's unusual to, to find people in today's church who have much of an appreciation for the Hebrew Bible, uh, much less the prophets. The prophets just seem Mm -hmm. like these kinds of odd, you know, people from antiquity, and it's sometimes difficult to establish their relevance to anything going on today. But Heschel tells a very different story. Um, And I, so much of the work we do in in our pro-life organization uh, is so uh, incontestably prophetic that it, it, it occurred to me 
Um, and I, I found Heschel by simply struggling to figure out what it is that we do. I mean, what do we do as, as mm-hmm. pro-life activists and, mm-hmm. and how could we better do it? Yeah. Uh, and and, and it, it occurred to me by God's grace that our work is prophetic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I began to scour the web for books on prophecy and the prophets and Heschel comes up and I, I, mm-hmm. I read a couple of reviews and I thought that th- this man is talking to me mm-hmm. and all my frustrations and anger and mm-hmm. failings and whatever. So I got the book and was mesmerized by it and, and began to take notes. And, uh, and, and part of what I propose to do today, um, which may sound to be deadly boring. I mean, maybe people will turn us off as soon as I say this. Never. It, okay. Well, I went, I went through the book and I, I distilled Heschel down into um, a series of points that he makes, which are references to scripture and mm-hmm. characterizations of scripture, quotes from scripture um, that, that really uh, speak to who Heschel was and how he saw the Hebrew Bible and, mm-hmm. and specifically uh, who he thinks the prophets were and, and what do they have to say to us today. So uh, I'll I'll send you this list, and mm-hmm. you know it's it can be it sounds daunting to you know this this guy's going to sit here and read you know read this thing, mm-hmm. but it, it really is uh, I I think um, worthy of the time it will take to get through this, and I think it frames everything that I understand you to be doing with this podcast mm-hmm. series. It, it it really I think will be useful. I'll I'll send you this list. You can put it up where. Mm-hmm where your listeners can uh, gain access to it. Sure. It, it helped. It, it provides some context within which to look at the individual prophets. This is sort of a, sort of a macro view of mm-hmm. prophetic ministry. And then you can drill down and say, mm-hmm. okay, you know, what, what, who, who was Amos? And, you know, what was that about? And, okay. and Jeremiah, well, whatever. Before you do that, Greg, one of the, one of the things that I completely forgot to mention in my introduction there of you is that you're a director of the Center of Bioethical Research or Reform, rather, in the US. So our shared connection is Dave Brennan, Mr. Dave Brennan, who friend of ours who we value and love and appreciate very much. Every week we do podcasts together on the subject of uh, abortion and, and so on. So that's the context in which you're, ta- you're, you're talking. I'm just making that clear because people listening might, may have not had that connection. So um, essentially you're a colleague of Dave Brennan, but you're stateside. If I, if, if I may just interject. Yeah. Dave, Dave is part of our UK uh, a branch, if you will, the UK affiliate of our mm-hmm. Center for Bioethical Reform. So I'm I'm in the in the US version mm-hmm. uh, of the organization. We have mm-hmm. offices in several of the states here in the US, mm-hmm. but we also have offices uh, in uh, Wales and in in Northern Ireland, and uh, we've struggled mightily uh, to get an office open in the Republic of Ireland <laughs> to no avail. Okay. And I hope my my Irish friends are listening. They are not an easy group of people with whom to work, to say okay. the least. And we okay. love them, but yeah. we haven't had success there. But anyway, so so that, that's that's who we are. Dave is actually us. Yes, indeed. Um, 
before you go into that, I mean, let's with that uh, list that you've got there. I'm just trying to be instinctive here as well as as recording live with you, and it might be that we get to that. Um, I'm wondering. I'm wondering, without being presumptuous either, that we might we might end up doing a second um, installment of this podcast because I, I I suspect that there may be more here than than is going to be doable in one forty five minute. Um, recording but if if you don't mind great let me just say a little bit about uh the significance of heschel for myself and then that that will then i think dovetail in what into into what you want to say um why heschel was so important for me now it's important to make the point that heschel was not a christian he was a jewish i think he was polish wasn't he yes he was he was a a polish immigrant but he was a rabbi and he was a I i think he fled the holocaust as many uh, Jews did in the in the 30s and 40s, but mm-hmm. he he became a a very influential um, a rabbinical professor at Hebrew Theological Seminary in New York City for many right. years. He widely yeah. published, and, and 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 Christians took took note of him, and and, and not a few Christians have mm-hmm. studied his his work on the prophets and have applied it to the modern church. Yeah. And it's this particular point. My story relating to how I stumbled across it sounds it sounds bizarrely similar to yours. In that I had I had done a random Google search to try and find some help to understand this prophetic burden, prophetic what can feel like a plague. Um, Heschel and Heschel's opening for me and I explain this in the chapter called Divine Pathos in my book, that I've given a whole chapter to this because I think it's so important for the church, the New Testament church of which we are obviously a part, commanded to eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. Um, And for that to be in the context of, of this season of the podcast of all the prophets, that's why we're doing a whole season on looking at the prophets. So they couldn't really be a better place for us to start than this uh, conversation with Abraham Heschel. Now, I'm going to make this point in hopefully 60 seconds and then pass over to you, but it was just to make this point that the thing that helped me about reading Heschel, and it was in the first chapter or two, I think it might have even been the opening um, few paragraphs, where he makes makes this profound point about what what is a, a what is a prophet, basically. That's the question he poses at the beginning. What is a prophet? Or what type of man is a prophet? And then he goes on to answer it by making this point, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna read it. It's just a paraphrase. A paraphrase that um, he makes a point about this thing called divine pathos, which is the the suffering empathy or suffering sympathy um, of a of a human being relating with the suffering heart of God. That's that's divine pathos. And that that's what makes a prophet, not somebody who can make spurious predictions necessarily about some future event, which may or may not prove to be true and, and, and so on, but that someone who actually experiences a sense of the things that the, the general mainstream regard as being trivial or incidental or something that you might roll your eyes at for the prophet who has that experience of divine pathos, the suffering heart of the divine, um, it's doomsday. The sky is falling as opposed to just something that's mildly irritating. And I think for me, that's why it was so so critically important to have read that and to have understood that this gift that we're told to eagerly desire, that's not eagerly desiring a gift to tell the future and predict, make predictions. It's coming into a closer understanding of Yahweh's heart for 
a, a very messed up bride. And so I don't know if that was that the was that the kind of the dollop the you know the, the injection of sanity for you as well, Greg. Would you would you relate with that? Yes, uh, totally. And I I was struggling because with with at risk of of um, sounding as though I'm whining. I, I deeply dislike what I do. Uh, I, I came very reluctantly and grudgingly into pro-life activism. Uh, I had to be dragged into it, and I grumble about it. And my dear wife constantly holds up the scripture uh, in, in which God says, why are you speaking harsh words against me? You're grumbling. Mm-hmm. And, and on top of everything else, I said to her, you mean I can't even grumble? I not only have to do this, awful <laughs> but I can't even grumble about it. Because God hears that as harsh words, but mm-hmm. it, and something that it didn't occur to me would be necessarily helpful during our conversation tonight. Uh, you you raise an issue you raise, and I, I now recall in your insightful observation a moment ago. Uh, I, I have been impressed again and again and again as I've read. Um, the testimonies, if you will, of agnostics and atheists, some of whom are stridently atheistic, they are activistically atheistic. Why is it that they are atheists? Why why don't they believe in God? Um, Or or if they do believe in God, it's a a sort of an angry belief. Um, And and the, the, the common thread that runs through a lot of these rejections of God is that if there is a God, how how could he possibly, if he's a loving God, how could he possibly allow all of these terrible things to happen? Mm. And and Heschel, who's who lost a lot of his family in the in the Holocaust, a lot a lot, a lot of his friends as well, um, responded very differently from Elie Weisel, who was his contemporary. And Elie Weisel lost his faith because of the Holocaust, but Heschel's faith was deepened. Mm. Heschel came away closer to God. Elie Weisel uh, came, came away rejecting God. And, and what I think is a, um, is a really important connection to what you just said is the suffering heart of God. God isn't causing suffering that gets visited on us. Mm-hmm. He's suffering with us. Yeah. One third of the angels betrayed God, rebelled against God, and had to be evicted forcibly from heaven. I mean, it, that, that, that's, that's how how you know god begins talking about uh heaven mm-hmm. uh, and jesus gets rejected the apostles abandon him they betray him uh, there's an enormous i mean everything we suffer god is suffering with us so this this is not a situation in which god is sitting someplace in comfort and splendor and luxury watching us suffer he feels our pain yeah uh, Every every bit of our agony agonizes him. So he 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 is um, he shares that with us, and in the process encourages us and enables us. Uh, so when, when when you talk about this pathos and this su- suffering heart of God, I think it's really really important uh, for Christians to bear in mind that when when there when awful things are happening, they're not just ha- happening to us; they're mm-hmm. happening to God. Uh, and, and, and so that, I think, gives us a common bond with God, a commonality. God became man in the person of Jesus. It gets rejected, tormented, tortured to death. And mm-hmm. it's his way of saying, I'm going to suffer what you're suffering. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not just going to put you out here and let you get beaten up and and you know kind of you know cheer you on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that 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 is that. Um, Heschel, um, <clears throat> let me read through these uh, these notes very quickly. And if there is a second podcast involving me or not, uh, at, at least I think this will be a, a helpful way to frame your discussion of the prophets individually mm-hmm. in groups or whatever. So he, um, I'm, I, I have th- these are quotes. This isn't me talking. This is Heschel talking. And I have the page numbers here so people can get the book and, and they can look at these quotes in the context in which they appear in the text. Heschel begins by saying, this book is about some of the most disturbing people who ever lived. Wow, I mean, it just <laughs> rocked me back on my heels when I mm. when I read that. These are disturbing people. Mm. And, and, and number two, the major activity of the prophets was interference, remonstrating about the wrongs inflicted on other people, meddling in fair in, in affairs which were seemingly neither their concern nor their responsibility. Number three, to those who oppose him, saying, do not preach, Micah says, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. In other words, nothing God is saying through me should be a threat to anybody who's behaving as God would have to behave. So if you feel threatened by what I'm saying, your problem isn't with me, your problem is with God. Mm. Number four, the prophet was an individual who said no to his society, condemning its habits and assumptions, its complacency, waywardness, and syncretism. Number five, the things that horrified the prophets are even now daily occurrences all over the world. They're commonplace. Number six, their breathless impatience with injustice may strike us as hysteria. We ourselves witness continually acts of injustice, manifestations of hypocrisy, falsehood, outrage, misery, but we we rarely grow indignant or overly excited. Mm. Number seven, but if such deep sensitivity to evil is to be called hysteria, what name should be given to the abysmal indifference to evil, which the prophet bewails, which Mm -hmm. is so common, I will say parenthetically, so common in the church today. Mm. The prophet is intent uh, on intensifying responsibility. His words are often slashing, even horrid, uh, designed to shock rather than edify. Number nine, carried away by the demand to straighten out man's ways, the prophet is strange, one-sided, and unbearable extremist. Number 10, He is stigmatized as a madman by his contemporaries and by some modern scholars as abnormal. Number 11, the main vocation of a prophet is to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Number 12, the prophet's eye is directed to the contemporary scene. The society and its conduct are the main theme of his speeches. Number 13, The thought he has to convey is more than language can contain. Number 14, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a Hebrew, 
Now, this is Amos speaking. I am no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a Hebrew and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. The point here, if I may interject parenthetically, mm, is, mm. Being, being a prophet doesn't mean you hear the audible voice of God speaking to you in the night, um, it proclaiming you to, to be a prophet and commissioning you. That God takes common people who have no obvious credentials or authority, uh, and, and, and he says to them, I want you to go here and say this. And they, they may not be prophets in the sort of theologically strict sense of the term, but God uses them uh, to, in, in a, to, to function as, uh, as people who become his spokespeople uh, communicating a specific message mm-hmm. to a specific group of people. Yeah. God's supreme concern is righteousness. His essential demand of man is to establish justice. And, and, and you read this theme over and over and over again in Heschel. Justice, justice, justice. That's what God cares so deeply about. Yeah. 16. Amos' primary mission was not to predict, but to exhort and persuade. And when we think of prophecy, we often think of for some act of foretelling yeah. people. But what, what the prophets did a great deal of the time, and Heschel emphasizes this, is they were calling out injustice that was being ignored or trivialized. And, and they were imputing, assigning responsibility either for causing the injustice or for facilitating it by ignoring it. Let me just interject on that one for people listening briefly, because, again, we we keep on heralding this command to eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. And it's it's very important for people to hear that that's not to be understood to to mean you need to desire a gift which would enable you to predict the future. That's exactly right. And, and, and the prophets did predict the future, but it wasn't their principal occupation. Mm-hmm. Their principal occupation was to be a witness against evil, injustice, and, and not only from the perspective of, of um, uh, indicting the perpetrators of injustice, mm-hmm. but from the perspective of, of, of people who basically said, what does this have to do with me? I mean, well, I, yeah. you know, I, I'm very good. Yeah. Like I didn't do this. Um, and, and we, we could go, we, we could um, expound at length on Leviticus 20, for instance, or 20 or 22. I'd have to go back and look. I think it's 20 or 22 where, where, where God says, if you know the child sacrifice is going on, you aren't doing it. You just know it's going on. Right. You turn, you turn a blind eye toward it. Um, I'm I'm going to respond disapprovingly to that. Mm-hmm. I, I will I, I will cut you off. Mm-hmm. So we, we we have an obligation to do something about injustice, and that was a big part of what the prophets were communicating, and it certainly is, is a theme that is, mm-hmm. uh, is amplified by Heschel. And to make the point there, Greg, as well that that was a prophetic mandate to to Israel, to the covenant people of God, um, primarily. Yes, exactly. And and by derivation to us. Exactly. In, in, in the modern church. The destructiveness of God's power is not due to God's hostility to man, but, but to his intolerance for injustice. 18, God is above 
uh, all a God of justice. 19, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Micah 6, 8. Uh, number 20, the prophet is a lonely man. His standards are too high and his concern too intense for other men to shape. 21, my people have been lost sheep. That's Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. The shepherds who care for my people have scattered the flock and driven them away. Again, Jeremiah. 22, I did not sit in the company of merrymakers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because thy hand was upon me, mm -hmm. and thou hast filled me with indignation. Mm -hmm. And Jeremiah. Being a prophet is isolating, it's alienating, and it will certainly separate you from your, your culture, your society, mm -hmm. because you're calling them out. 24, Jeremiah succeeded in offending, chafing, even alarming his contemporaries. 25, the task of the early prophets was to threaten and shock. 26, it is not mystical experience the prophet longs for in the night, but historical justice. 27, it is within the realm of history that man is charged with God's mission. In other words, what's going on around us right now? Um, 28, justice is a transcendent demand freighted with divine concern. Mm -hmm. 29, and it, 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 here's, here's where Jeremiah gets harsh. The shepherds are stupid, and he's talking about the pastors. The shepherds are stupid. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds, Exodus 34. Mm -hmm. uh, number 30, the distinction of the prophets was their remorseless unveiling of injustice and oppression in their comprehension of social, political, and religious evil. Mm -hmm. 31, the urgency of justice was an urgency of saving the victims of oppression. So it had a very practical relevance to what was going on. It wasn't just some abstract disapproval for, uh, for inequity. It was people were being hurt um, and, and yeah. no, no one was doing anything to stop it. Um, 32, those who are easily exploited possess no skill in pleading their own case. 33, who will prevent the epidemic of injustice that no court of justice is capable of stopping? 34, the prophet is a person who is not tolerant of wrongs done to others, who resents other people's injuries. 35, for I, the Lord, love justice. That's an Isaiah quote. Mm -hmm. 36, he loves righteousness and justice. 37, speaking of God, 37, you have uh, established equity. You have executed justice. That's a song. 38, what is, the most what is most rational to the prophets seems irrational to us. Mm -hmm. 39, the prophets' great contribution to humanity was the discovery of the evil of indifference, not merely perpetrating injustice, but tolerating it, enabling it, facilitating it, mm -hmm. because you knew it was happening. You God gave you the wherewithal to stop it, and you chose to turn away. Mm -hmm. 40, all prophecy is one great exclamation. God is not indifferent to evil. 
41, the prophets could not remain calm in the face of crimes committed by men. 42, the words of the prophet are often like thunder. They sound as if they were in a state of hysteria. 43, the prophet is a riddle for which there is no explanation. And 44, uh, the prophets, the great prophets, persisted in condemning the leaders, the kings, the princes, the priests, mm -hmm. even more vehemently than the common people. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's and we could say more, but but those were the, the main points that I took away from the book. Um, and I, I hope uh, it, it was a bit <laughs> perhaps tedious to listen to me plow through them. Not at all. I, mm. I, I, I hope it, uh, it will inspire people to get the book, read the book, and, and, and listen to your podcast discussions of the themes that Heschel develops in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that wasn't tedious at all, Greg. It was, uh, it was like I've, I'm sat here with a pint of water because I'm in a very hot, stuffy room, and it was like drinking a spiritual equivalent, listening to that. Um, wonderfully concise. And for all of us, um, I mean, I, in, in one sense, I'm, I'm like a kid in a sweet shop, not, not really knowing where to start with that because the, the, there is this prophetic irony. Perhaps this is a good place to start, a prophetic irony that this, this gentleman, Abraham Heschel, um, wasn't a Christian. There's a, there's a prophetic irony that those 45 points that you just read out that you've obviously done a lot of legwork in um uh kind of distilling for everybody listening it's it's like that insight if if just a fraction of that was present in the pulpits of the churches up and down this country and in your country in the west you know what what would the church be like in other words if this command to eagerly desire the gift of of you know, especially the gift. If that's a command that that isn't faithfully responded to, what what's the net result of that? Is isn't it dun, you know donkeys speaking? Well, and that's a brilliant insight, and and it is ironic that this um, this Jewish rabbi would be arguably um, sent to the modern church as a prophetic voice. Uh, through whom uh, God is saying uh, the Old Testament matters, the prophets matter, yeah. and the, the irrelevance, the shameful, shocking irrelevance of the church today mm. is directly a function of the church having lost its prophetic mission. Mm -hmm. It's 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 it sense that it has a prophetic obligation, and and the the the, the sad truth. The painful truth is that the church has, in essence, brokered a tacit agreement with the culture. You don't mm -hmm. bother us, and we won't bother you. Yeah. And in the process, rendered itself irrelevant. Uh, and, and, and all of this is, is a quest to avoid persecution. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, a, it's a transformation of the church into a business entity that, that is market-driven and uh, and led by people who recognize that if you're too prophetic, people will stop attending and they'll stop contributing. And, and yeah. your desire to, to build an ever larger church uh, can only be fulfilled uh, if you ensure that the church is largely irrelevant 
to the child sacrifice that is mm -hmm. raging all around us mm -hmm. that, that is killing more people than a pandemic or yeah. whatever. And when, when we look at God's response to child sacrifice, it, it, it is anger of a sort that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture. It's not Cain slays Abel, mm -hmm. uh, which, which angered God, but God forgave Cain and protected him. Right? It's a garden variety homicide. That's not what child sacrifice is. Child sacrifice enrages God at, at, at a level that he, he threatens to destroy his own people because That's right. of their, yeah. their complicity in child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And, and we, I think we make a terrible mistake today when we don't characterize uh, uh, abortion as genocide when we're talking to the secular culture because it plainly is. It very neatly fits and if you'll forgive a personal reference, I say this as an attorney, it neatly fits into some of the of, of the widely accepted definitions of genocide. But mm -hmm. we need to characterize it as child sacrifice when we're speaking to the church, mm -hmm. most notably because we need to ask ourselves, if, if we're to love what God loves and hate what God hates, uh, and if, if we're correctly defining abortion to be child sacrifice, how does God respond to child sacrifice mm -hmm. with, a, with an, a, a, an unprecedented anger. Yeah. Uh, and that obligates us to respond uh, far more seriously to take, mm -hmm. uh, to, to engage on this issue mm -hmm. uh, with much, much greater seriousness than mm -hmm. is currently the case. So there's the quote, isn't there? Um, I, I'm going to paraphrase this very badly, but along the lines of what you were just saying and, and what Heschel is, is, highlighting that the prophets are saying is that all something like all that's required for evil to flourish is that good men do nothing right. I can't Ed, even... yeah edmund edmund burke um who uh, was uh perhaps the greatest uh, thinker and orator of his age there you go that's who it was i'll include that in the show notes along with your um 45 points um just to clarify for people what that was, that that was Greg's 45 main points that he's drawn out of this book by Abraham Heschel called The Prophets. And the book itself is quite long. It's about 400 pages plus, um, which might make it more difficult for some of you to approach or to stick with than others. Others of you will love it and you'll lap it up and you'll read it and reread it. But I know, I know, I know people that don't, that, 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 you know, they struggle to read. So we don't want that to be a stumbling block and it would be a travesty if that was the case. So I'll, I'll include those 45 points. Um, somehow we'll get a link to that in, in the show notes of this particular episode, but Greg for, for, and thank you so much. Just just on a personal level, because again, I'll, I'm going to listen to that and I'm going to enjoy reading on it and, and prayerfully reflecting and, and so on. And perhaps it will, it will shape, um, how this season, which has only just started, by the way, this is the very first kind of guest episode that uh, that we've done. Perhaps these forty-five points are going to shape the remainder of this season um, very powerfully. But I just want to ask you to try and to try and draw out from you a little bit of personal application, if that's okay, in the rest of the time today. Of those forty-five points, would you say that there are any? that you might have uh, you know highlighted in yellow or underlined in black or something that you that struck you as being a particularly uh sanity providing moment for you you know that was interpreting your life 
how you responded to certain things and particularly with the church in mind? Uh, that's a very, very good, very good question. And, and the answer is yes. Uh, these, these 45 points, any one of these 45 points would merit an entire uh, podcast program. Yeah. <laughs> the depth is simply astonishing. But um, when, I, when I think of the church today, uh, I, I think the problem starts in seminaries. Our seminaries are largely pathetic. Uh, enormous numbers of, of seminary faculty uh, members are of dubious um, seriousness about their faith, and some mm-hmm. some only thinly veil their lack of faith. Uh, they become very secularized, um, and we we one of our staff members who who has an an MDiv from uh, I won't say the name of the school, but it's I mean you you would recognize it, and many people would. He went to his counselor after the first month of seminary, and he said, I, "He said I came here for a master of divinity degree, and I feel like you're teaching an MBA." He said, "When do we talk about Jesus?" Because mm-hmm. the whole thing was, "How do you administer the church, and how do you organize, and how do you fundraise, and how do you staff and HR? I mean, all of this mm-hmm. stuff that was institutional, um, and 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 it's that." sort of seminary that's producing pastors who are mm-hmm. leading the flock astray because they they want to be the friends with man and they place themselves at enmity with God yeah. in the process mm-hmm. because they they fear persecution and there is horrific injustice going on all around us with all of this transgender stuff and teenage girls uh, being a prepubescent girls uh, behind their parents' backs, being taken to Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. and put on on puberty blocking uh, drugs and mm-hmm. uh, and cross sex hormones and, mm-hmm. uh, and mutilating their breasts and genitals. Mm-hmm. Their Planned Parenthood's doing referrals for that. Frequently, a lot of that's going on without parental permission or even awareness. Where is the church in the midst of this? Yeah. Uh, and we're we we are so afraid that somebody's going to unfriend us on Facebook, mm. or, or maybe we'll lose our jobs or whatever. That we're we're just kind of pretending we don't see all of this. So it's not just abortion. It it's it's this attack on our children, attacks on our That's family, right. and the, and the church is basically kind of holed up, hiding under the table, hoping no one will. <laughs> We won't come to anybody's attention, mm-hmm. so they won't attack us. Mm-hmm. And and the church is to be about. We're to be on the attack. We're to be winsome and be loving and and all of that. But we are to mm-hmm. stand against evil. So when I read Heschel, and Heschel is saying the prophets, the message of the prophets was meddle, be disturbing. Get involved in things that, for which you have no obvious responsibility, that, mm-hmm. that are not relevant to you in any particular way, to be a voice for the voiceless. Uh, it, it's, it's the widows and orphans. We're to take their side, plead their case, mm-hmm. provide for them. It's the, it's the good Samaritan going out of his way to take risks and make sacrifices in defense, in, in, in the interest of someone he didn't even know who happened to be uh, he was it was a Jew versus Samaritan. They, they didn't like each other. Mm-hmm. And Jesus structured the parable to say not only did this Samaritan have no obvious 
obligation uh, mm. to to this Jewish person, but mm. he, in fact, he maybe didn't even like the guy, at least conceptually. Yeah. So what what jumped out at me here was that we are to be bothersome, meddlesome, mm-hmm. disruptive. We're, we're to get involved where people will say, mind your own business. Mm-hmm. Anytime injustice, anytime someone's being victim of injustice, that is our business because God says it's our business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the, on the subtle difference with, the, with injustice in mind, but also a subtle difference between injustice and idolatry. And and when I say idolatry, I'm I'm meaning spiritual adultery, which which is a premier theme of the prophets. Um, and I'm I'm kind of I'm cautious to go down this track in a way because it would it will probably add another forty five minutes onto this podcast. But it's worthy of at least mentioning that it's not merely injustice. And perhaps this is where Heschel may have not had the fuller revelation of the of the spirit of God in that sense that. It isn't just about injustice. It's not even primarily about injustice. In the same way, that the, the the primary role and responsibility and goal of each of each of the each believer on the earth isn't evangelism. It's the glory of God, and evangelists typically will struggle with that more than others because because of the gifting and the calling to evangelize in that kind of quote unquote office, and yet it isn't the main point. The main point is the glory of God, and I would I would kind of uh, parallel that with the thought that it's not primarily the prophetic, the result of of the prophetic or the prophet isn't primarily to address injustice, although that is clearly high uh, high up the agenda. It's the glory of God, which comes back to the issue of divine pathos, in that and and what and why stroke how it is that the the prophetic ministry is primarily to the church primarily to God's covenant people. It's this issue of idolatry um, vis-a-vis spiritual adultery. And I think that's, that is, in a sense, the greatest injustice when the very covenant people of God are playing the whore to use the, the type of language of the prophets. Um, and it's interesting uh, with Hosea in mind, particularly for obvious reasons, but in Hosea 7, at the very, at the very beginning of chapter 7 of Hosea, it says that when God um, restores Ephraim, he reveals iniquity. When he, when he would heal Ephraim, he reveals iniquity. And I just wonder if that's partly what we're living through at the moment in perhaps an early stage, is seeing the church um, being healed with that hand in handness of iniquity being revealed. Does that does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I think it's a very important, it's a very subtle insight, but a critically important insight. And, and I, I, I may be um, putting too fine a point on this, but uh, we have come to worship the church exactly. as an institution in an exactly. idolatrous way. Um, and and, and we, we are unwilling because we've made this huge investment in the church, we are unwilling to place the church at risk institutionally, mm. place the, the, the reputation of the church at, at risk. Mm-hmm. But, but you're right. It's all about the glory of God. It's about mm-hmm. glorifying God. Jesus created all things. He holds all things together. Yeah. He will judge all things. But he says, you are my friend. If you want to be my friend, you've got mm-hmm. to obey my command. 
And, yeah. and, and, and in obeying his command, we glorify him. That's the, it's not, it's not singing, you know, hosannas or mm. you know, sacrificing something. Uh, it's obeying his commands. It's this yeah. idea of obedience. God says, and I, I, I wish I had at the tip of my fingers all of the actual scriptural quotes, but God says, if you love me, obey my commands. Yeah, John 15, so, yeah. So how, how do we glorify God? Mm-hmm. God says, you want to glorify me, obey my commands. Jesus says, you want to be my friend, mm-hmm. obey my commands. Mm-hmm. And and I, I agree with everything that you just said. I think it's a very important point. Mm-hmm. But I would tie it even more directly into the problem the church is facing today, because we've come to worship the church as an institution. And, and I'll, just, I'll say this as briefly as I can. Yeah. In, in the in, in the American Civil War, uh, there was a man named George McClellan, who was one of President Abraham Lincoln's top generals. He commanded the Army of the Potomac, and and he was he was he had a massive army that he refused to commit to battle because he loved to march the army and train mm-hmm. the army and equip the army and 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 practice strategy and and tactics the kinds of exercises. And Lincoln kept saying, when are you going to fight? And, and Lincoln's, yeah. Lincoln's other generals said, we're losing troops because McClellan won't bring his army to battle. We're, 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 we are losing fights we wouldn't lose if McClellan would bring his troops to battle. Now, Lincoln finally fired McClellan and replaced him. I think historically, he, he, he put up with the guy far longer than he should. Mm. But... Um, but but George McClellan would have been right at home in the in the in the modern church <laughs> in, in, the, in the mega church yeah. uh, that never really brings the the army to battle. It, mm-hmm. It's always he, he well if he had a, more troops or more equipment or more mm-hmm. ammunition or whatever. I mean, he's just mm-hmm. not quite ready. We just kind of never get to the point mm-hmm. where we engage the culture. And, and fight evil because we're worshiping the church as an institution. Indeed. They didn't want to bloody his army. He didn't yeah. want to see the terrible consequences of battle after he had built up this magnificent army. And the church is very much that same way. We know that we're going to pay a terrible price if we engage the culture. And it, it really is a form of idolatry to say the church as an institution mm-hmm. is, is, is more important uh, than Christ, who says the church is his body and his bride. Beginning of Exodus 32, where Moses has been delayed in his rather important uh, appointment with Yahweh, um, and the people gather to Aaron and ask him to make them a a golden calf. The point that came out of our teaching series session just on Sunday gone was that it was the people seeing the delay that spawned this kind of idolatry, um, which for them back then was a golden calf. For us today is, as you've just said, the preference, the love, the infatuation with the church over and above the one, the bridegroom. Um, and it's that's the pandemic. That's that's the issue that is uh, has rendered the church 
um, irrelevant. And if, I don't, if you don't mind me just saying quickly in passing that one of the biggest symptoms, I don't know what it's like your side, but for me, and I'm just going to say this, I've said it before public and I'm going to say it again, that one of the biggest symptoms that we've seen that demonstrates that in recent months is the clamour, is the clamouring of the church to have the gall to call the government to account for closing the church. Uh, during during the pandemic, how dare you close the church, say a large part of the church, including some very fine people actually in this country who do a lot of fine legal work with other things. Um, how dare you close the church as though the church was being faithful. And in and of, its, in and of that self, that is so self-evidently idolatrous um, that, that most people just can't see it, Greg. Um, yeah, that's a, that is, that's a very great point. And over and against that, uh, I, I read last year uh, a Christian MP, I think authentically so, was lamenting the fact that when all of these lockdowns uh, began, he was getting, uh, his office was besieged by calls from business owners, people who owned restaurants and pubs and whatever, who were saying, we're going to be driven out of business, you know, we can't sustain this these losses being visited on us, he said, not a single pastor called me and said, please help me keep my church open. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't, I don't, I don't doubt that there, there were Christians complaining about yes. the fact that the government was locking down the church. His experience was the calls he was getting were from commercial enterprises, not from, from pastors. And he was saying, this is a very sad commentary. I, I, I can Google the guy. I'm sure you can find find it that he was all over the news for a while mm. uh, he said what a sad commentary yeah. on the state of the church that mm. pastors meekly rolled over and and ceded control of their fellowship to Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock or whomever um, <laughs> as, as though you know they were the new uh, you know head of the church mm-hmm. yeah there's so much to say, Greg. It's a real joy to speak to somebody who who sees and and uh, feels um, some of the things, and it, and they are just some of the things uh, because we see in part, of course. Um, it's refreshing. I um. I think we've probably run out of time for today, and um, one thing I just want to kind of partly answer my own question, going back a few minutes, asking you if there's anything in particular of those. 45 points that stood out and one that one that stood out to me and I can't I didn't write it down but it was where he was talking about isolation or loneliness and it reminded me of an A.W. Tozer passage from his book The Dwelling Place of God I'm just going to read it and then we can close close in prayer because I want people listening I'm, I'm hoping that people listening will have understood through what you've said and what you've shared there Greg that um, eagerly desiring the gift of prophecy, which we're told to do, but we're, 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 to, we're told to desire above all others, is not, um, we're not going to understand that, what that actually means by looking at the church. Because the, the church, as you've said, is so generally um, atrophied when it comes to genuine prophetic ministry because, um, you know, pastors want to basically sacrifice and kick out people who are prophetic um equally the the prophetic ministry doesn't just mean waving flags and being idiots when it comes to uh how meetings are are run and that kind of thing there's there are all these caricatures and stereotypes of what it means to be 
prophetic in the New Testament context. Again, I've, I've mentioned in, in recent episodes, Wayne Grudem's book on this is quite helpful to, to an extent. Um, but I want to just read this quote from Tozer. And then we can... Excuse me one second. Please, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, um, at, at Professor Grudem's book on systematic theology sitting right on my desk as you speak. <laughs> okay, yeah. His, his book on prophecy is called uh, Prophecy in the New Testament or something like that. Um, again, we could do separate podcasts on that because there are some bits that we agree with and find really helpful and there are other bits that just don't don't quite make sense to us. But Tozer, can I, do you mind if we do this, Greg, could I just read this very brief quote and then we could perhaps pray together to close? Is that okay? Certainly. Uh, brilliant. This is Tozer from um, his book, The Dwelling Place of God. And this is just, I think, for me, and I'm, I'm saying this part, partly as a testimony, but also partly to, um, I think, correct a wrong understanding of what being prophetic will mean in the months and years ahead. This is what Tozer says. The desire for human companionship is completely natural and right. The loneliness of the Christian results from his walk with God in an ungodly world, a walk that must often take him away from the fellowship of good Christians, as well as from that of the unregenerate world. His God-given instincts cry out for companionship with others of his kind, others who can understand his longings, his aspirations, his absorption in the love of Christ. And because within his circle of friends there are so few who share his inner experiences, he is forced to walk alone. The unsatisfied longings of the prophets for human understanding caused them to cry out in their complaint, and even our Lord himself suffered in the same way. Very powerful and and absolutely apt. Indeed. Father, we, we just love you now and... We thank you for the miracle of prayer and of the miracle, the absolute miracle of prayer and communion with you. And thank you for kindredness. Thank you for um, the family of God on the earth. Thank you for fathers. Thank you for sons. Thank you for mothers and daughters. Thank you for family. And I thank you for Greg and his wife. Thank you for Greg and his life and his testimony and his work and his ministry. And tonight we acknowledge you, Lord, as the one who paid the ultimate price and that invites us right now, everybody listening, to eagerly desire the gifts that you still give today. And we pray together that you would be truly glorified by your people on the earth being increasingly faithful and increasingly, as it were, relevant in a godless anti-Christ world with prophetic potency, prophetic disruption, and dare I say, prophetic loneliness. And we pray in the name of Jesus for your glory, Father. Amen. Amen. And Father, as we struggle um, so imperfectly to fulfill the obligations with which you charged us prophetically, and deal with the isolation and the rejection and the stigmatization um, as, as all of this anathematizes us in the society in which we live. Thank you for the comfort that you provide us in your assurance that there will be a wedding feast in heaven. Yes. And, 
and kindred spirits will come together and celebrate mm. um, in eternal fellowship with you and with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Mm. Amen. Maranatha. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church. We trust that it's been both provoking and challenging as well as inspiring and comforting in the midst of this very evil present age. If you'd like to get behind what we're doing, if you'd like to support us through prayer and through financial support, we'd be deeply grateful for both of those two ways of supporting. And you can do that and find out a little bit more information about that by going to firebrandnotes.com forward slash give that's firebrandnotes.com forward slash give we'd be deeply grateful check it out and we look forward to connecting with you soon maranatha